0: VanGorders.com
1: WJFF Jeffersonville Radio Catskill
2: Hello and welcome to Radio Catskill's State of Democracy panel. I'm Jason Dole. Coming up, Lori Stewart of The River Reporter will lead three guests in a conversation on what democracy is and is not in America, the threats it faces, and what can be done to strengthen that democracy. We will meet our guests and hand things over to Lori Stewart in just a moment. But first, in keeping with our local approach to national and global issues, let's hear what folks on the street in our listening area are thinking about these issues. Earlier in the month, producer Rosie Starr from Farm and Country spoke to folks at a public marketplace to get some opinions and uh, what they had to say serves almost as an overture for the in-depth conversation that our panel's about to get into.
0: How are you feeling about democracy right now, the state of democracy? I think it's probably been a lot better at other times, but that's you know not necessarily a bad thing. It's time for people to get directly involved. Uh, people have a lot of passions and a lot of thoughts, but none of those really matter unless you get involved and get active, and I think a lot of people are joining the process now, and I don't think there's anything healthier for democracy than that.
1: You know, I stopped watching any form of news a little over two years ago, uh, before the election, I just thought it was uh, too fractious and thought it was just so negative both sides that I I couldn't deal with it anymore.
0: Democracy is one of these loaded words that the content that you give it, I think democracy has to be more than periodic elections in a process that's controlled by big money in a system where the political structures are all reflect those interests and not those of the majority. I feel it's never been more important for every one of us to be engaged. Democracy is seriously under threat. I think we are in the vast majority who feel that, but are not really engaged with that idea and try to keep our democracy vibrant and alive.
1: How do you feel about democracy right now? You've touched
2: on that a little bit. Yeah,
0: I think that we shouldn't take that for granted. It's fragile, just like relationships we have to work at them and i think that as as a country although we've been involved in wars we have not had to make the sacrifices that forefathers have made and and people in many other countries so this is a test for us a real test it frightens me that we have become so fragmented yeah i'm i'm concerned
2: democracy uh, i
0: always
1: have to ask uh, for who and, you know, for what? Democracy for most people, I think, means having the rights and the freedoms and the political
0: space to struggle for what's in our interests as the majority that work for a living.
3: I'm not sure really what to think about all of this. I I feel sad for this nation because the United States used to be a great country, and I feel we slip slipped back a little bit. But hopefully in 2022, we'll come around again and people will start loving America and putting up their flags and go to a better year.
0: I hope that in 2022 we can confront the divisions that are really I think being perpetrated on us. I don't think those divisions naturally exist. I think they're being perpetrated on us and so I think we need to find ways as a local community to confront some of the stuff that's going on in school boards.
3: The nation can only get better I would say.
0: You know very often When you surround yourselves with people of like thinking, you don't consider some things. I think the events of 2020, election and and so forth, and since then, January 6th, should be a wake-up call to all of us that uh, don't take democracy for granted.
3: I feel like we are in such a precarious place with democracy. And at times I feel powerless. At times I feel like forces beyond our control are pushing us in a very negative direction. And I remember that it really is about just neighbor to neighbor. Keep our hearts open. Keep in communication. Keep loving. And that is the absolute best we can do. And we are not powerless. We can do that. Thank you for taking the
0: time to speak with us.
2: Voices from the community talking about democracy. And big thanks to Rosie Starr for those interviews. And now on to the main event. Our guests tonight are Jeff Miller, Associate Professor of Political Science and International Relations at SUNY New Paltz. Sandy Oxford, Citizen Activist. And Abigail Evans, Campus Leader of the Democracy Matters Institute at SUNY Albany. And your host for this discussion is Lori Stewart, publisher of the River Reporter newspaper. Welcome to the Radio Catskill State of Democracy special. Here's Lori Stewart.
3: So the state of democracy is in the news. You know, on December 9th, there was an international summit uh, hosted by President Biden about the state of democracy. Uh, The Pope has talked about the state of democracy. Uh, So what is it? That what what makes a democracy a democracy, and I wonder, Jeff, if you might um, talk about that a little bit
4: Sure, I can talk about that Well democracy is a really old word right it 's one of our oldest political concepts. It originates back in the fifth century BCE with the Athenians and the Greeks, um, and literally, if you just take the Greek words demos plus, plus Kratos, it is people power. Um, And it seems to develop over and against uh, oligarchic or tyrannical monarchical conceptions of rule. The democracy that the Athenians had in the 5th and 4th century BC, however, that's very, very different from the type of democracy we have today. So you can make, I think most scholars would make a quick distinction between direct democracy and representative democracy. So we're in a representative democracy the Athenians, maybe some forms of the Swiss cantons over the centuries have been in a more direct democracy. Those are fairly rare and tend to be fairly small. Representative democracies are bigger, and they're sort of the name of the game today. And I would add to that that in the United States and most of uh, Western Europe, we're not just in representative democracies, but we're in liberal democracies. And what the liberal qualifier usually means is that it's sort of like democracies with guide rails. So we have a constitution, the first 10, 10 amendments of the constitution, for example, restrict what the government can do. So in a a direct democracy in ancient Greece, for example, there would be no rule for the Athenian assembly that would say that they couldn't say, oh, uh, Sandy, you can't wear glasses anymore. They could actually do that. Now, they never did things like that, but they could. There's no theoretical barrier to it. Whereas in the United States and liberal democracies, we think there are real barriers and limits on what the public can do. So that's that's a quick rough and ready definition of some you know, kind of fundamental terms in democracy, I guess I would just add to that that democracy is a is a pretty recent term uh, politically that ha- that has um, has a positive valence right If you look back one hundred two hundred years, certainly around the time of the u s founding, nobody wanted to be a democracy. Democracy was viewed as being very dangerous um, so it 's only in the last maybe one hundred years that you have all sorts of states that are claiming to be democracies, some of them legitimately so, some of them, you know, China, for example, claims to be a democracy, not so legitimately so. So it's, it's a new concept that's been embraced, I think, over the last hundred years. I can, I can expand on any of that. You know, I'm a professor, I can talk forever, so you guys should interrupt me.
3: <laughs> Abby, do you, what would you say, what, 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 what is the fundamentals of democracy? What makes it a democracy?
4: Mm-hmm.
5: So just kind of like a baseline, democracy is a government where people are able to take an active role in their government. Um, whether or not people actually do take advantage of that active role they're allowed to have is another thing. Um, and so if people don't actively engage in their democracy, is it still a democracy? Yes, but it's unfulfilled. And so in order to really reap the full benefits of democracy, we really need everybody to be as involved as they can.
3: So what I hear you saying is that everyone everyone has to take, so democracy is really somehow a relationship between the government and its people. Certainly,
5: yes, and the relationship with uh, people and each other. It's not just people as an individual level and their governing. It's we live in a society, our community needs to uh, support one another. And so in order to actually use a democracy to its full extent, we all need to be a part of it.
3: So, Sandy, like as an activist like how, how, how do you how do you see the people being a part of it
1: Well, um, I think that these um, definitions of democracy are really sound and helpful the The discord is sadly it 's really not been a reflection of the history of our country. Much of the democracy here has been reserved to folks that have access and access to this democracy or access to participate in the democracy has not been uh, done on equal footing since the inception of this country. So we have a real uh, proportion of individuals who have been disengaged, who've been disenfranchised, and that many of the protections and the statutes that are the foundations of this democracy were really not for the, um, you know, unless you were a white male, you really were not included in, in, in the provisions of what this democracy was offering. One of
3: the things that strikes me, uh, interestingly enough, in, in, uh, in thinking about democracy right now, is that, is that I think that everyone is very concerned about it. You know, I I know I have a relative who 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 sees themselves as a patriot, um, a supporter of the Constitution, and like really feels that somehow it's being co opted. You know, when you ask the the folks who were at the Capitol, um, you know, in in January, I mean, they really felt like they were being patriots. They were harking back to 1776. So. Do, Jeff, do you have any kind of insight in terms of like what their uh, what connections they might be making?
4: Well, uh, well, like you, you know, I have relatives and friends who are sort of in that category, uh, members of the Constitution Party. Right. Um, who are worried about our Constitution or worried about the status of our elections, who really believe that, you know, 2020 was a stolen election. Um, I think, you know, this sort of really deep cleavage, the sort of divide in our country uh, is probably the biggest problem that we face I mean, we can go through a lot of sort of structural problems problems with the Constitution things that impede access. Um, but really right now the real problem is we, you know, we, we have different sets of beliefs and we have real trouble talking with one another. Um, and, and I think that goes beyond any of the sort of, I don't want to call them superficial because they're not, they're all very important, but these sort of topical level problems, right? There's a, so I'm, I'm a classicist, you have to kind of forgive me a little bit, I do classical political theory, but there's this amazing story in Thucydides talks about a, a city called Crocyra that's falling into civil war. And as it happens in these sorts of things, first you turn on your political enemies, then you turn on people who might owe you money, then eventually your family members. And what Thucydides says happens at the, at the low point in this war is, he says, words begin to lose their meaning and what he means by that is that the warring parties had no way to communicate with one another because they one person would say one thing and another person would think something else about it right there was no common language and i you know i fear that we're close to that right now right and and i think that if we could find a way back to getting to that point where we had some sort of common language some sort of common understanding that'd go a long way to um not eliminating, but alleviating a lot of the, the immediate stress of these problems. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know what Sandy and Abbott. I, I, I,
1: I would like to just dovetail on some of what Jeff has shared. Cause I think it's a very important point and it's uh, what I call the, the lack of courageous conversations that we're having. It feels like there's a real unwillingness to have these conversations. And I try to, Um, reflect on what I feel we are living in a time of transition and in this transition how do we come up with a common culture of respect and decency for each other when we disagree that is uh, for me something that I try to work on regularly because these conversations are vital they're vital to the movement work that's being done, they're vital to the power building that we're seeing in many communities that are focused on dismantling some of the inequity and the injustice. Um, sadly, the democracy that we live in has built these institutions that are rooted in in this injustice and lack of access to to resources for folks who have been minoritized and right now we see young people in the streets they you know they're not following the rules of democracy and they're not following the rules of institutions they are doing movement work in the streets and i i'm with those young people cuz i think that that is how we move the needle in this time of transition
5: mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd love to jump in on this. Um, A lot of the work that we do at college campuses is just trying to bring civic education to the ordinary college student, And it's something that we really need to do at all levels of a child's educational developments. But we really need to push is what I think Jeff was alluding to this like useful confrontation because we're getting to a really polarized partisanship, like partisan culture in our political climate and so everybody yells at each other and nobody listens to what the other is saying. And so what we really need to do is, um, in schools, we're doing a lot of diversity initiatives and bringing racial and ethnic and socioeconomic um, diversity into the education of just cultural competence building in schools. And we need to add political diversity to that as well, because kids do not know how to speak to one another in a respectful way to actually talk about their political beliefs and to develop them into something more than just, this is what I believe, that's what you believe, I don't care. We really need to build a culture where students will listen to each other so that we can address some of the partisanship that is growing.
4: Yeah, I'd say that's particularly a problem on kind of, you know, I'm I'm at SUNY New Paltz, right? It's kind of a lefty campus. Most of the students here are Democrats or some version of the left side of things. And I find that if if I do get a student who's a Republican in my classes, You know, they're either they either don't want to talk at all or if they do talk, they're extremely articulate. And they can often defend themselves much better than the Democratic students in the class, because they're always put on the spot. They have to do this kind of constantly. And the Democratic mm-hmm. students, they kind of they speak in an echo chamber. They speak to one another. They read the same news sources. They're mm-hmm. all in Democratic underground. They're visiting the daily calls, and they, and they know stuff, but they're, they're unable to, to defend themselves when they're pushed. And so I think that you know the sort of engagement that Abby and Sandy are talking about, bringing people that have very, very different viewpoints together and getting them to talk in a civil manner, just that, mm-hmm. that's a big start. You have to get to an agreement, but just, you know, respectful conversations is an excellent place to begin.
3: Getting back fundamentally, like I know we can't talk to each other. We can't actually exchange ideas. So is that a foundation of democracy, exchanging ideas?
4: Well, yeah, I, I think that's inevitable in a democracy. That's what it's about, right? You have to have some sort of public sphere within which people can deliberate and debate. So people have to agree on the, on the ground rules. And I think that if you pitched it at a general enough level, you know, people would agree on the ground rules for liberal democracy in the United States. Most people would agree on the importance of elections. uh, And they want them to be free and fair. Um, Most people would agree that representation at, at a very abstract level should be roughly equal, should be distributed evenly across the population. So I think those are, those are good starting points. The problem comes when you, you look at very specific cases. Um, so I often, I often find, and I'm a political theorist, so I, I like to abstract away from specific political cases. If I can get people to talk about abstracts, then it's a little easier to move into some sort of reasoned discussion about an actual election or an actual political issue if you can get some agreement on those foundational issues first.
3: So it sounds like we've got two things. In, if we're just uh, establishing uh, a foundation for a uh, democracy is a public sphere where people interact free and fair elections and representation that is equally accessible. I mean, and it's ideal. And Sandy, you already brought up that it's not, you know, it just generally doesn't live up to its ideal uh, yeah, for sure. It,
4: Sandy's right about that. I guess I should just add there and that like, it's, it's not an ideal in the sense that, you know, if you ask an ancient Greek whether we're a democracy or not, they would say, no, you're an oligarchy, because elections are characteristic of oligarchies, not of democracies. As Sandy was pointing out, who wins elections? Well, they're guys that look like me and have more money, right? That's who wins elections in the United States, right? And that that's not democratic representation for the Greeks. So it's an ideal for us, perhaps, and it's an attainable ideal, because I think there's kind of widespread agreement over it. But we we do need to expand the sphere of who gets to speak, when they get to speak, who can run for office, what sort of support there is mm-hmm. for, or for these sorts of people.
3: Abby, you have something to add to that? I would love to. Yes. Yeah.
5: So the work that I do with Democracy Matters, um, we really highlight the role that money has in creating those institutions of uh, oppression that keep Christian white men at the top. And so with the amount of money that is necessary to drown out the voices of people's votes and to keep um, underrepresented communities from actually getting a chance to win an election, we need to get money out of politics because otherwise we have already rich people who wanna protect their riches and their buddies from the yacht Club are just getting together, running an election, winning because they were able to reach more people just bribe more people into protecting their candidacy. And they're the ones that are elected and they're loyal to themselves and they're loyal to their donors once they're in office. So that means they're not actually listening to their constituents who demand environmental reform and um, racial equality and education reform and all of these really important social issues that the American people demand are not being addressed because big oil and coal are the ones running the elections. So if we get big money out of politics, then we can actually get poor, underrepresented people running for office, winning office, and then making some change in Congress.
1: If if I may just continue where Abby has taken us, if that's okay, I feel that you know, folks ask well if, if we live in a democracy, I often say we live under capitalism mm-hmm. because that's how what it feels like when we look at our health care, when we look at our workers' rights, when we look at, you know, all of the issues, and I think one of the biggest issues that we are all facing right now is climate change. So mm-hmm. so it is that removing the influence of the corporate donors, removing the influence of money and really um, re-establishing that we value the public good Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: like other countries that actually protect the consumer from the cost of an EpiPen where people in this country for the same prescription pay three, four, five, six times the amount because other countries have protected the citizenry with laws it's the same thing with workers rights you know right now we are witnessing we we have these great errors right now we are witnessing in workers rights the great resignation people are just resigning they're not resigning they're not resigning because they don't want to work they're resigning because they understand that these corporations like amazon who are amassing incredible wealth every hour, a um, billion dollars that I can't even tell you how many years it would take me to amass that amount in my current, under uh, under the current uh, wage structure that I'm in, it's, it's just phenomenal. So it's this money, remo- the money, removing the money from politics would go a very long way in a variety of issues.
3: This is Lori Stewart, and you're listening to the State of Democracy on Radio Catskill. My guests are Jeff Miller, Associate Professor of Political Science and International Relations at SUNY New Paltz, Sandy Oxford, citizen activist, and Abigail Evans, Campus Leader of the Democracy Matters Institute at SUNY Albany. Now, let's talk about the threats of democracy. Does anybody want to start kind of airing our dirty laundry, as it were. Abby, I think you might
1: be <laughs> that
5: one. Um, I mean, we could certainly go into the list of just all the institutional uh, systems of oppression that have been created and reinforced by our democratic system. But what I was thinking about in reading this question of just like the cultural and social events of today that can affect our democracy is just, I worry, as we mentioned before, the state of partisanship in our democracy is already an issue, but I'm worried even more about respect with our elected officials just seeming to devolve more into just a, they don't care. It seems to like have a respect for the solemnity of their positions. And so we have representatives calling each other names, using slurs, fantasizing violence towards their colleagues. It's Mm -hmm. it's really horrifying. And following former President Trump's term, it seems like elected office is really transforming into some kind of sick kind of entertainment. And so that, I think, is really a real threat to our democracy if we continue to let it become this kind of. making fun of other people and not using it as a way to actually improve our society. We need to have respect and it needs to come from our representatives so that everyone else can follow their lead.
1: Abby makes another really strong point here. And we even see that at the local level, Mm -hmm. you know, in our own community, uh, in our own backyard and front yard here in our region, where we see the deterioration of a common culture of respect. That um, it sometimes feel like we're witnessing a WWE match, like a cage <laughs> match, when we're watching local politics or national politics. I I, I do want to bring us to what I believe is is another threat, and that has been the barriers and some of the deterioration to the access to voting. In this year, we've passed more laws to prevent people from accessing vote and criminalizing people from um, assisting others in voting. Uh, I, uh, I've i traveled to other states to help with doing voting work, doing canvassing work. And I will just tell you, when we were uh, trying to protect Barack Obama's old Senate seat in, in Chicago, you know, my job was to stand on these long lines where folks were waiting to vote with water and with folding chairs to help elderly people stay in line. And so they wouldn't leave the line to vote. And in certain States that's now become criminalized. You know, we, we see that here in 2021 in uh, we, we have States that have criminalized handing out water, um, assisting disabled people at the polls and also assisting with, um, language access. Language access is a very big deal. Sadly, it's not just one side. It's like bipartisan that we see that there is not valuing really helping people to have better access to being able to vote. So, um, as far as this year, my, my understanding is that 19 states have enacted 33 laws that make it harder for people to vote. And we've never seen that in, in, in our lifetime.
4: Yeah, I, I would agree strongly with Sandy. I mean, I think of you know, sort of political challenges along three lines on the one hand, you can kind of have every day, almost kind of quotidian uh, disagreement. Should we or should we not have the Keystone oil pipeline? Should we extend health care? To whom should we extend it? You know, what should it cost? These things, they're always with us, right? Then there are sort of structural problems built into the Constitution, right? Senate representation is a big problem, right? The Electoral College is a problem. The way we replace justices on the Supreme Court is a problem. But then, you know, there are these what I, what I find really disturbing and 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 relatively new in in sort of their importance is these underlying threats to the democratic process. One of those are you know is voter suppression laws, the sort of thing that Sandy's been talking about, right? Another one would be the the kind of continual attempts to undermine the legitimacy of the 2020 re- elections, call that into question, right? Uh, that's very very troubling, right? The the extent to which Republican party members, I wish I could you know both sides this, but I really can't, right? The extent to which the Republican Party right now is trying to purge any sort of Republican Party members who supported the legitimacy of the election and replacing them in their posts through legitimate means, right? This is very disturbing, right? And the reason it's so disturbing is that being able to control the electoral outcomes lock in a permanent majority. We can't change it after that. You know, we could could lose the presidency, we could lose the Supreme Court, we could lose Congress, but we could always assume that we get it back through the electoral process. But these threats voter suppression uh, threats, you know, undermining the claims of the election, kind of moving us in the direction, a non-democratic direction, an authoritarian direction, these these are game over if they happen, or at least game over for the foreseeable future.
0: Mm -hmm.
5: Similarly to Jeff, like, just the thought of democracy is kind of similar to the stock market, is that it requires everyone to believe in it to continue thriving. And so really sowing that doubt, like... We all grew up in a time of peaceful transitions like that is the expectation. And I guess like I was thinking, have I been taking this for granted? But that's the point. We need to take it for granted. It was such a problem in um, partisan media growing, uh, leading up to the 2020 presidential election. People kept asking former President Trump if he would accept the results of the election. He doesn't have an option that should never have been an option for him. So kind of creating this idea that we're allowed or able to doubt democracy when it's instituted to protect us and like to be um, representative, like this is what we need to believe in in order for it to actually succeed. And so sowing that doubt is really, really losing the war.
4: Yeah, and some of this stuff has just already been institutionalized. If you think mm. about some of the states where gerrymandering is going on right now, and again, Democrats have done this in the past. They're not so aggressive about it these days. But, you know, Biden won last Wisconsin um, during the election, right? Um, it was a close race, but he won it. If you look at the map of Wisconsin state uh, assembly, state legislature map, right, it's sixty-two Repo- six Republicans, two Democrats, right? That's that's the map. Right. It should be more or less equally divided. Right. But the Republicans have it gerrymandered in their favor. And that that locks things in, It locks things in both the Mm -hmm. state level and, you know, sends an unrepresentative uh, delegation to Congress and, and amplifies the problems there.
3: One of the things that I think about, I'm a local publisher here in the upper Delaware River Valley. And so it's very interesting, you know, we, we always are in a situation where are we just covering, you know, like what's happening at a town board meeting or are we using the town board meeting as a jumping off point to like really go in and take a look at the issue. And so I think that, I think that the media is really uh, very challenged at this moment in time to not just you know, kind of report what people say because it's amazing. Like what people say is often not actually accurate, and so that um, you know, you 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 have this situation where it's also very difficult for people to be figuring out like what actually is true. I really liked what you said, Abby. That in one sense, there never should have been a question. <laughs> Why would you even ask the question? Are you going to accept the like? Are you going to accept how people voted in this democracy? Since that's since I think that we you kind of free, free and fair elections is one of our foundations, right? That we named, you know, just a little bit ago. So it's 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 very interesting when uh, when when these questions can be um, you know brought up in a way to, in one sense, simply cause concern. And question. Things are being undermined a lot and they're being framed in a way that is very, there's a certain mendacity, there's a certain untruth uh, underlying how things are getting framed. Do you have any advice to people in terms of like, how do they, how do they discern
4: I wish I had good things to say here, hopeful things to say here. But, I, you know, as you might surmise, I'm, I'm not so hopeful about that. I think these these problems lie very deep um, in in how we get information, how we process it. You know, they they lie deep in our, our our own individual civic associations who we associate with, you know, where we work, who we hang out with, what kind of communities we live in. These are very hard things to to change because we're getting information from very different sources and those sources don't really agree um, fundamentally. So I, you know, mm-hmm. I, you know, patients. I'd, I'd counsel patients. I'd counsel conversations. But it, this is not something we're going to be able to change very quickly, right? Uh, you know, the the internet. Balkanizes us. It sends us off all into our own little corners. We talk with people with whom we agree. We read articles with whom we agree. I, I try to make an effort to go over and look at Fox News sometimes, but I'm like, I can't even read it, you know, <laughs> uh, or, or Newsmax. Worse, right? And so it's hard. It's hard to make that kind of that kind of shift. It's hard to talk mm-hmm. with our, our neighbors who might be conservative or might be Trump supporters. This is th- these are difficult things. Now that's not to say we can't do anything. You know, we can support pieces of legislation. That are progressive, um, that move towards stabilizing the democratic system, right? The John Lewis Voting Rights Amendment, the mm. For the People Act. We can, we can work. You guys have mentioned money, you know, the influence of money in politics. We can do campaign finance reform. We can mm. do more to publicly fund campaigns. We can make arguments, uh, try to get legislation through about donor transparency. We can curb mm. the revolving door in Washington D.C. And, and Albany, for that matter, right here. <laughs> We can, we can try to introduce things like ranked choice, choice, choice voting. Um, there, there are real steps forward just today. I don't know if you guys looked in the paper, but just today, New York City uh, just decided to allow all residents to vote whether or not they're citizens, which is a fabulous move forward. So there are, there are small things you can do on the margin, but I think, you know, to, to cross that barrier, to get people back into the position where they're willing to talk with one another and, and believe one another and have some sort of a common basis, that's just going to take time.
3: Abby, do you have any direct experience in terms of that, like helping people kind of get through uh, these kinds of uh, ways to different ways to look at things? Mm-hmm.
5: So, uh, what we do at UAlbany with Democracy Matters, uh, it's really important to get students involved in this this movement for campaign finance reform. You can't just run around campus and like start spewing finance facts because no one will listen to you; their brains will turn off. Um, So what we have to do to really get people engaged is to meet them where they are, find something that students are already passionate about, and then bring them in to, oh, you really care about environmentalism? Here's how public financing can help you there. Like, that's really important. In order to pass environmental reform, we first need to reform our democracy. Um, and something that I remember Sandy saying earlier about we live under capitalism, Um, I really... I really resonated with that because in something I took a journalism course uh, last year and we learned about historically in order to overthrow democracies, you don't need to touch the economy. You don't need to undermine any kind of capitalist system or freedoms. What you do need to stifle is the free press. And so Citizens United established money as speech.
3: And... (laughs)
5: we're seeing more and more distrust in our free press. And so we're drifting dangerously close to an American public that trusts money more than it trusts the truth. And so to avoid that kind of downfall of democracy, we really need people to read the news more. Uh, they need to read from ple- places they disagree with so that they don't fall victim to confirmation bias. And I remember something that we used a lot in high school in my government class. Um, there's a website called allsides.com that gives you three articles from different from like a a right, left and a center kind of ideolo- ideological look at a certain issue. And so that can really help teach. It really taught me as a high school student to look at who's writing, um, who's saying what they're saying and who is funding them. Definitely uh, with democracy matters, you really need to make sure you understand how money is influencing uh, your views.
1: And to, to add to that, I, I think you know we have we're, we're we're a bit fortunate in our region because we do have access to some independent news sources, mm-hmm. which is very important. However, we see with the consolidation and with injecting all this money and 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 lack of of, of resources to some of the smaller um, journalism, uh, whether it's print media or digital media, we end up with these. Kind of like news deserts and, 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 and we see the loss of a lot of our local media we, again, which is why I'm so thankful that WJFF has made space to create, uh, intentionally for local news. Local news is essential. This is, this is the ground game. And this is actually where we're going to be building our farm team to be able to fight against. The, the 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 bigger the the bigger oppression that that we are all talking about here, um, the, the the corporatization of our media and 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 what I have heard from journalists who work for I, I guess it's you know so much of the media has been just diluted into five big corporations across this country, and when you talk to journalists that they're just exhausted and it's really not about getting the truth out it's about you know, um, supporting what what helps to sell papers and what what the folks who are taking ads out in, these big corporate um, sponsors that, that that are subsidizing a lot of our, our local media, supporting independent local media is essential. Growing the next generation of journalists is, is is going to be part of the game changer, and it should be part of the assignment that we all uh, commit to.
4: Yeah, local media is really important. I would agree with that a lot. And, you know, I, I like what activists like Abby do on campuses. College is kind of a unique space where students are brought together, and they're kind of forced to socialize with one another, and they, they get involved in these product, uh, projects, um, and I, that's very helpful. I, you know, my concern... It's not so much with the college students, though. It's what what happens after college. You know, Robert Putnam back in the year 2000 published this kind of really important book uh, about the hollowing out of American civic institutions. It's called Bowling Alone. And and the basic premise is he, he uses bowling leagues, right, from the 50s up to 2000 as an indicator of civic engagement. Back in the 1950s, everybody's in the bowling league. By 2000, nobody is, right? And not just bowling leagues, right? People have kind of evacuated all of those old civic institutions. Everyone's at home. They're getting deliveries from Amazon on, they're in their own internet corner, they're watching the television, and this this has only been amplified in the last 20 years, right? The civic cores of our community are really sort of emptied out. So, you know, one of the things I would say, you know, beyond just political activity, which you should do, and it's important, right? You need to go back into your communities, you need to start up new or join existing, maybe attenuated civic Community organizations and, and make them more robust because that's really where you're going to you're going to meet your neighbors, the people who are who live close by to you, and they may not have the same sense of politics as you do. But you can kind of work around that in non-political settings, right, where you're doing something else entirely. This is really really important, I think. And that you know, if there's going to be some sort of long-term change. That's that's where it's going to be. We we have to come out of get off get offline, come out into the civic square, talk to people.
3: Yes I agree I agree and I think that we find ourselves in this place where democracy is 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 really getting uh you know really challenged by by individualism by this great capitalism, and and by people, you know, really getting into just rudeness. Like, (laughs) we're not really interested in talking to people, we're just really interested in making our points, and um, and, and in one sense, uh, silencing um, that voice. This is Radio Catskill's State of Democracy special. Our guests are Jeff Miller, Sandy Oxford, and Abigail Evans. I'm Lori Stewart, publisher of The River Reporter. We've talked about the foundational tenets of democracy in America and the threats it faces. Now we're pivoting to what we can each do about strengthening democracy. I, I know that one of the things that's happening for people is that there's, this, there's way too much information and people are just very fatigued. And it shows itself in apathy and like kind of going, I cannot pay attention. So what, what would you say, individuals, like if you were talking to those very tired folks, you know, who are kind of going, I, I can't deal with this. Let me just make some cookies and explore sourdough.
1: What would you say for, to them? I would like to just try to appeal to those people by asking them to really stay as local as they can. Right now, there's so much happening, for example, at everyone's school board meetings. People need to see what is, I have not been to a school board meeting in decades. And because of what is happening, because of the, what I believe is the assault that is going on in our school board meetings and with uh, the challenging of how we're going to teach history or we're not going to teach this debate over whether we teach history or not is incredible to me. It's unacceptable to me. I've sat with many elders, elders of color in Sullivan County again, and it's been their first school board meeting in their life that they go to. And now they are going because they know, they know the history that they lived and they know the history that their students and their family members were not taught. And they see, again, in many ways, we see the very reactionary right wing is building their farm team. And they're doing it at school board meetings and challenging curriculum and challenging teaching the truth about our democracy and about our history. So I know it's overwhelming and I know people want to flinch away from the table because it's just too much. Um, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm guilty. I'm a culprit. I, I stayed away from those meetings intentionally. We can't afford to do that anymore. Can't afford to hide, huh?
4: I, I would agree. I, I like, I like the local emphasis, right? Both politically and socially. I think, you know, for my money too, though, you need to, um, I feel like, you know, democracy really has kind of a crisis of imagination. I feel like we're in a little bit of a rut here. And so I I really like to see things, like I mentioned before, this sort of the fact that New York City just today decided to allow all residents to vote, whether they're citizens or not. This is really thinking outside the box, right? We started off, or, or you started off, Laurie, by asking what kinds of democracies are out there, right? And there is a history of democratic process, procedure, practices, uh, it's not limited to the way that we do things in the United States or even Western liberal democracies. We can look a little bit further afield to see how other democracies have, have coped with very similar problems, actually, especially about money and, and divisive information. There, there are methods that uh, other states have used to, to address this sort of thing. So one might be extending the sphere of who gets to be elected. You know, I know a number of liberal democracies up in Canada, in Paris this year, several places in Europe. They're practicing with kind of mini public legislatures. So bringing a group of people together to deliberate over a particular issue that's of high uh, public salience, and then that group making a recommendation to the formal legislature for a vote on it, right? So it's not something that gets caught up in the in the lobbying process or kind of goes through the usual uh, legislative process where things get chewed up a little bit and, and allows real citizens a little more contact with the real sausage-making uh, of legislative procedure. So things like that, I think, are good. I think we need to kind of think beyond the boundaries of where we normally think democratic action and procedure occur. How about
1: you, Gabby? I, I just want to go back oh. because I really believe that education... Is the germ of salvation. And for many of us, like myself, it was what helped to it was what helped me to lift myself and to lift my family out of um, a situation and to improve my situation. And you know, Jeff is from the state university here in New York. I don't want to pick on the state university. However, we can look at any one of our any one of our services, any, all of the public good has been under assault for decades. We don't call it austerity, but when Jeff is continually asked to do more with less, that is a problem. And when students are asked to go into these incredible debts and, and, and yet the staff that are teaching them are not properly, um, compensated for these educations, that's a problem. When we look at our public health systems, when we look at our hospitals, when we, people don't call it austerity. However, there's always money there to give corporate welfare, to give tax abatements for the war, to, to fund wars and future wars. The money is always there. But when we're talking about human infrastructure, like childcare, like education, like elder care, like caring for our most vulnerable members of our society. We, it, then it's a budgetary issue and it's a process and it's a tug of war. But when it comes to subsidizing, you know, Amazon, so they don't have to pay any taxes and, and this person can occupy a, 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 a bracket of wealth that is unbeknownst to anyone on the planet. No one, you know, like our government is not speaking up to protect us from that. So when we talk about going local, if you're a college student, look at your college budget. If you are, if your family relative is in a nursing home, look at that budget and look what's happening to them. It, it, it It's all local. It's all local.
4: So SUNY's going to need a new chancellor come January, Sandy. I'm going to nominate yeah. you for that position. <laughs> Get <us some> money. <laughs>
1: Um,
5: yeah, to continue on Sandy's point, um, I actually do have a pretty astonishing statistic. For uh, 2020 and 2021, student loan companies spent $7 million on political campaigns. And so a pretty common practice for what we do at UAlbany is just calculate how many college tuitions that is, like how many four-year educations that could get us. And just all of this lobbyist money that is poured into political campaigns to override the people's needs is truly horrifying. And so a lot of what we do to get students involved and like really getting into action, um, although it can be really tiring, it's certainly easier in a group we found. And so we do a lot of um, advocating for activism between the four-year presidential election. Everybody votes in the first uh, the presidential election. Not everybody, not enough, but most people only vote in the presidential election. And we have elections every single year. So first of all, voting all the time, whenever you can, uh, writing letters to elected officials, making phone calls to your elected officials. Democracy Matters had let has led a couple lobby days. So actually getting in front of our representatives and telling them how important public financing is to achieving the future that we need and that we want. Um, people really need to feel, feel like their representatives are approachable. And so we need students to believe that their voice matters and needs to be heard. Um, and I think that also really just comes from, again, not giving up on one another. Um, it's pretty common in teaching anti-racism, specifically for um, white people and privileged people, not to give up on the people in your life who are maybe not so far along in the anti-racism journey. And so like, you can't abandon the people who you think are not doing as well as you are in addressing your privilege. You need to be a part of helping them move forward. And so we need to keep talking to one another. We need to keep finding common ground. Otherwise, we're just going to keep feeding into the partisanship that is growing in our society.
3: So so what I've heard in terms of what people can be doing in in this situation that is um, often very discouraging um, that we don't necessarily want to deal with is to actually embrace that, but to embrace it on a local level, going to uh, board meetings to going and listening to what is the public debate. We get back to, you know, one of those foundational tenets of democracy. It's in that public sphere. People will interact So it sounds like, you know, really in encouraging people and energizing people to, uh, you know, to participate and to be strengthening democracy. I also heard follow the money leak. that that's foundational, that there's a certain corruption, perhaps, that that happens with uh, that. And, and, and the idea that you need so much money in order to to run for office is one of those things that really threatens that basic tenet of representative government. If we can't have representative government, if you don't have people who can actually get elected and you can only get elected if you have like a ton of money. So and also then thinking out of the box, you know, and and actually, I mean, I have to admit, like, oh, really? Like anybody who just is in the country can just vote. I mean, this would be an interesting conversation to have. I know that people would come, you know, what New York City did is is like totally like it's expanding out our comfort zone in a way and and exploring these things. So kind of in closing up. If you had one like little bit of advice or, uh, you know, suggestion for people to help strengthen, to help like in one sense, twist ourselves toward uh, much more of the democracy that we desire, what would it be?
4: Find a neighbor or a relative that has different, very different political beliefs from you and talk with them and do it civilly uh, and sustain that conversation over time, even though you may be driven crazy by it. Right. Just see if you can kind of build that level of trust up. Right. That can be in your neighborhood. It can be in your family, can be in in your church, your synagogue, wherever, wherever Right? you can find someone like that. I have people like this on my block where I live. Right. So it's a recommendation to myself as well.
1: I would like to um, make a recommendation to folks over 42 that they really be intentional and make themselves available to the new leadership that is emerging. We have a whole new cadre of leaders that are emerging, and some of them need our support. Some of them just need us to fall in line and be lockstep with the work that they're doing to address the injustice of our institutions. And I'm really putting my effort in investing in young people. I, I, I am inspired by what young people are doing. Um, some of the successes that young people are having today, this year, are things that many of us started out myself doing 30 years ago. And now I am seeing and I am so thankful that I am able to witness the success and the the victory that young people are having. Here in New York State, we've had many small victories in the criminal justice realm. And this came from young people. This came from young activists and young activists who were willing to piss off people in institutions, piss off people who may have came up through the movement as activists and then became very comfortable in these institutions. And now you've got these young people that are taking a sledgehammer to to what needs to be dismantled. And I um, I just want to appeal to the seasoned activists and to the seasoned wise people to please invest in the next generation of leadership. Speaking of which.
5: (laughs) (laughs) I certainly agree. Yes, something that I think is pretty a common mantra is that today's youth are tomorrow's leaders, but that isn't true. Today's youth are today's leaders. We are out there doing what we can, and it's really, uh, (laughs) it's a lot to live up to, I think. I think a lot of youth are really, Frightened and can be uh, put off by the idea that they need to be a part of this. But what I would say to all of those people who are nervous about getting involved or tired about getting involved, um, power is not finite. And specifically with the vote, your vote is power. And it's so often that we feel powerless in this world. So, Do not throw away your right to vote and be educated in your vote. There's tons of sites out there like Validopedia to help you research your candidates, become a candidate. All of this is at your fingertips. And it's really important that the next generation of leaders and the leaders of today have faith in that.
3: We're all giving it a thumbs up. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for this this discussion. You know, I, I think... I'm an optimist. Uh, I believe that um, people can be educated. Um, And I think that people are being educated and somewhat uh, incorrectly. (laughs) You know, we're kind of seeing that in in some of the, uh, in some things that are going on. But uh, I think that it's important to remember that we're, I think in people's hearts, they, 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 there is a connection. I think folks are. Uh, I feel like we're in a time. It's like it's now or never. There's so many different things, so many different challenges that we face, and I'm a true believer that leaders and educators and newspaper people and college professors and uh, student activists and seasoned activists are all like a piece of really helping people find that common language. Uh, and we are in a, a, a place where we want to, number one, know what our groundings are. That's why we wanted to start with what, what actually is a democracy. Understand, be sober. Like it isn't, there's it no Pollyanna-ish, I think. Um, about our situation uh, that we're in, uh, you know, I think everybody kind of has this idea that it's, it's, it's pretty, it's never, never let's step up to the plate. That's clear. Let's clear the obstacles that, ha- that kind of keep us in this place. So I really appreciate you all of your thoughts in terms of keeping an open mind, um, you know, looking locally, following the money understanding the place where our stories are not perfect understanding that nothing's pure ever has never been and that we you know we we continue to just move forward and uh, i agree with you jeff about talking to uh, our relatives i i m- and, and also assuring our relatives that it's okay if we have this conversation. I know that I have some folks in my, com- in my in my family where my father like kind of warns me before we sit down to dinner, do not talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> so I encourage everybody to like keep talking, keep your sense of humor. And I thank you so much for all of your thoughts and all of your really, really, really good work. We are all in this together, and I believe we'll make it through. So thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Laurie.
1: Thanks. Thank you, Laurie.
2: You've been listening to Radio Catskill's State of Democracy special with Jeff Miller, Associate Professor of Political Science and International Relations at SUNY Paltz. Sandy Oxford, citizen activist, and Abigail Evans, campus leader of the Democracy Matters Institute at SUNY Albany. And your host was Laurie Stewart, publisher of the River Reporter newspaper. This program was produced by Annika legrand wedich with planning by Radio Catskill and Laurie Stewart, post-production by Jason Dole. You know, in in the weeks leading up to this panel, Radio Catskill spoke with uh, two elected federal officials representing our listening area in Washington, D.C., spoke about key issues and legislation related to voting in the state of democracy. We spoke with Representative Matt Cartwright of Pennsylvania's 8th District and Representative Antonio Delgado of New York's 19th District. You can find those interviews at WJFFradio.org or on the local edition podcast, which you can get wherever you get your podcast from. I'm Jason Dole. Thank you so much to everyone who participated in this great discussion. And thank you for listening to the State of Democracy on Radio Catskill.
3: You're listening to Radio Catskill on air, online, on your
1: smartphone and on your smart speaker.
2: And if you missed any of that special, we'll we'll get it up on.